1: Our nation's capital. It's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon.
0: Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, the host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm a national Democratic strategist, a columnist for the Messenger in Washington, D.C., and a political analyst for News Radio KNX in Los Angeles. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups labor unions uh, and democrats mondays on deadline dc i talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward Uh, this week on deadline dc we have a very good show and some great guests in the first half hour our guest is sarah jones who is the editor-in-chief of politicus usa Uh, We're going to talk about uh, Donald Trump's uh, fascist tropes, which are really getting awful, very awful. Then in the second half hour, Tim Zink, managing partner of Earth Finance, uh, recaps the proceedings and results of the COP28 climate change conference in Dubai. Also with us today is Mark Grimaldi, our crack executive producer, who's here to make sure the trains run on time and the show stays online. Before we bring on our first guest, we're going to play this clip, uh, clip from Donald Trump campaigning in New Hampshire over the weekend. And I hope you're sitting down because this clip is pretty horrifying. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world they're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world they're pouring into our country. Nobody's even looking at them. They just come in. Uh, The crime is going to be tremendous. The terrorism is going to be. Terrorism is going to be. And then we built a tremendous piece
1: of the wall and then we...
0: You know, I don't know what to say about this clip. Uh, It seems to me that uh, Trump is bordering, you know, is heading into fascist, you know, Nazi territory. Uh, You just heard the clip about immigrants poisoning uh, the blood of our nation that was at a campaign appearance in New Hampshire over the weekend. Uh, previously, he had identified his political enemies as vermin. Uh, of course, uh, he announced a couple of weeks ago uh, that he planned to be a dictator on day one of his presidency. And this is all horrifying. And it's coming from a man uh, who has, you know, a decent shot of being president of the United States. And I don't know if we've ever had a legitimate candidate. Uh, for president of the United States, who is, you know, traded in fascist and Nazi tropes like that. And to me, it's getting scarier all the time. Our guest in this half hour is Sarah Jones, who is the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA. Uh, Sarah, thanks for joining us again. Uh, I want to start out by asking you your reaction to that clip we just played.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Brad. Um, That clip really horrified me. It's still with me. It kind of haunted me all weekend. And I want to point out because, you know, we've spent a lot of time avoiding comparing Trump to Hitler, even when, you know, there are multiple things. When he sided with white nationalism, he was using Nazi tropes from 2016 on. We have avoided that. But we are at a point now where if we don't make that comparison, um, and we're not talking about what you know Hitler did in the end, but in the lead up to his power and what got him there, this is mirroring that language. Um, You know, Hitler warned against the German blood being poisoned by Jews and migrants in Mein Kampf. And that's exactly what Donald Trump is doing. He's repeating it over and over again to normalize it. It's not like he doesn't know. He already got called out for this. He knows exactly what he's doing, um, because just as you pointed out, he said um, just a month or two ago, called all of his opponents vermin. Uh, And I would like to point out that Hitler and Mussolini both compared their enemies to rodents in their rise to power. So what we need to equate this language with is a rise to power. And that's what Trump is doing. I think he knows he has no other path to get back into the White House. And so he's getting more and more desperate. What is making this so dangerous, though, is that, as you pointed out, he's a legitimate candidate. He's he's Um, polling at the top, way top of everyone else in his party. No one in his party, save for Chris Christie, um, will call him out. And the media has, um, by and large, although not everyone, but has normalized this. They should have really been calling this out when he called people vermin. What Why does a leader want to dehumanize large sections of the population? It's because you attack democracy by attacking anyone who supports it. So you use words, and we saw this with Hitler, Marxists attacking labor unions, attacking the left, attacking, attacking, you know, suspected socialists and communists, all of that. Um, is what Hitler did in his rise to power. We see Trump doing that too. And that is all an attack on democracy. So everyone who's thinking, well, I'm not in those lists, you know, most of us actually aren't in those lists, but we are according to Trump. So I would ask everyone who's listening, who doesn't think this is that bad, where is this going? He's not even in power yet. What does he do when he has power? And I think we're seeing some of that in what he, what Republicans are eyeing up for him in terms of the border, because they want to give, you know, take, give the president the right to withhold asylum completely, and all of that is leading up to, um, I think, a lot of violence. It's paving the way for it.
0: Yeah, it really is. And again, I mean, if you look at polling. Uh, In the national polls, Trump is ahead of Haley and DeSantis by more than 30 points. Uh, The races are a little bit closer than that in Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, where he's probably got a 20-point lead in both places right now. Uh, And, you know, right now, uh, the uh, general election, uh, his uh, national poll showed him so essentially in a close race. Uh, with Joe Biden. So this is not some fringe nutball candidate uh, we're talking about here. Uh, this is a guy who has, you know, could be president. Uh, and the more I see of him, the more horrifying that possibility becomes. You know, and I think you're right. I think he keeps to keep repeating this. It, it does normalize it. And people say, you know, people say, oh, that's just Trump being Trump. Well, you know, I heard, I watched uh, Lindsey Graham on one of the talk shows Sunday, and they asked uh, Graham about this comment. And, you know, he just uh, basically, you know, put it to the side and said, well, you know, sometimes I don't agree with President Trump's language. Uh his language—he should say his language is horrifying and a threat right. to American democracy. But now it's just Donald being Donald
1: again. Which just is like they that- said, you know, to, just like they justified his um, admission on tape that he's a serial sexual assaulter of women. Uh, and guess what? You know, now he has been found liable for rape. So those words have a lot of meaning, and I think that Republicans whitewash those words. Very, I, I, I honestly, except for Chris Christie, can't think of one of them that doesn't. They were just trying to tell us that when he said he was going to be a dictator on day one, he was just joking. And then cut to, you know, days later, here he is um, basically quoting Hitler.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really horrifying. And I think the question is, I think if I was Mitch McConnell, is a good example I don't know the new Speaker of the House Mike Johnson is probably just about as far right as Trump is so I don't know if he matter it matters but he should because the Republicans are in danger of losing the house this Republicans have a chance to win the Senate and I would if I was Mitch McConnell I don't think McConnell reacted to that statement at all that I'm aware of. And, you know, McConnell should be horrified at the impact that Trump might have on the Republican Party and its chances to uh, take control of the Senate. Uh, We're going to have to take a short break now uh, for our radio listeners, but I will be continuing this discussion of uh, Donald Trump, the Republican Party in the presidential race uh, with our good friend Sarah Jones, editor-in-chief of Politicus USA. Uh, we'll be back with more of Deadline DC right after this break uh, for our, vi- our viewers and in a couple of minutes for our radio listeners. Welcome back. To Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Sarah Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Politicus USA. Uh, Please check out politicususa.com. I hope I got the website right. Uh, And I just want to make special mention to our radio listeners uh, that if you'd like to watch Deadline DC as well as listen to it, uh, you can do it. Uh, at twitter.com, front slash Brad Bannon, on facebook.com, front slash Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, or on YouTube at youtube.com, Deadline DC. We're going to resume our discussion here. We've been talking about uh, Donald Trump uh, going wild, uh, and he's going increasingly wild. Uh, let me ask you this, Sarah. Uh, if you look at the national polls again, uh, basically we're in a very. There would be a very close presidential race between Trump and Biden. Uh, Trump actually probably has an edge in the Electoral College, uh, which is the vehicle that counts in American politics. And the question is. Uh, can somebody like Donald Trump who's so horrifying uh, and and is increasingly horrifying uh, actually win a second term in your opinion beat Joe Biden?
1: Well, I want to preface this by saying that anything is possible, right We saw that in 2016 yeah. and we're also seeing um, Republicans align themselves with Putin and in terms of his uh war of aggression against ukraine and you know i keep asking um what are they getting in return for this alignment is it just that they hate joe biden so much that they want to undermine uh western democracy because of it i don't think so because in 2016 they weren't running against joe biden and we they began to change change their platform to be more anti-Ukraine in 2016, um, at Donald Trump's campaign's behest. So, I I think we can't underestimate the power that Russia has, uh, not to come in and hack our elections, although we know that they have um, gotten into our election information, our voting rolls, but but rather to exploit these already existing um it divides and so when I remember that that the power they have of doing that and I kind of see some of that going on in the um Israel uh, Gaza situation um obviously people have a lot of strong feelings in both directions, but I'm seeing that raised to such a level online. That it brings to mind to me that we were so easily manipulated and we have been many times, especially online, um, by rogue actors wanting to exploit these divisions. So could he win again? Of course he can. You know, he's got a lot of help. Um, he has the help of the Kremlin and they have a lot of power, um, at least online they do. And most Americans are online. So, yeah, I think he can win again. I, I don't think right now um
0: and uh trump used uh, putin putin is a character reference uh, uh recently yes.
1: yeah he did he um he cited putin as his way to criticize joe biden and saying putin says that you know with joe biden in charge um it just proves that western democracy doesn't work which of course you know what a statement! When that's his entire purpose, and that's why he supports Donald Trump, because he knows Donald Trump undermines uh, the West, and that's Putin's goal. So every time I, you know, I have anyone ask me, can he win again? Yes, I think we would be fools if we don't always prepare for um, what doesn't seem possible at this point because it happened before. And I would also like to throw in here really quickly, if you could indulge me in this, I'm changing the topic, just, but it's kind of the same thing. I want to remind everyone that days before the Capitol riot, um, Trump's top general, uh, Mark Milley, he reportedly warned people that America was facing um, its Reichstag moment because Trump was preaching the gospel of the fuhrer. With his stolen election lies, and so this isn't new. What we're seeing from Trump, the this you know copying Hitler's language, um, this isn't new. He hasn't been doing it in public, maybe so much as he has as he sort of doing now. But the people who worked with him saw it.
0: Yeah, let's uh, move on here. Uh- This week for The Messenger, I wrote a column about uh, military aid to Ukraine uh, and Israel. Uh, Speaker Michael Johnson, uh, the Republican uh, majority uh, Senate Speaker, uh, adjourned the House without taking an action on a bill uh, to aid Ukraine and Israel. But he did find time to begin an impeachment inquiry against President Biden, which I think is an indication of the... Rip-
2: Sorry about that. This is uh, Mark Grimali, the producer. I think Brad just had an issue with his camera. Um, just, you know, talking about the Ukraine aid, you know, and how Republicans are trying to leverage the aid to Ukraine and Israel by pushing through these, um, you know, horrific immigration policies or anti-immigration policies, where basically they're trying to set up so that if Trump is president, he can have unilateral control over our immigration policies. Um, how how are things looking, you know, from your purview at this situation?
1: Well, we know that Senate Republicans um, have said that there is progress being made on that. But of course, I think we have to all ask ourselves first, why have Republicans um, tied aid to Ukraine to um, the to the border? If you look back, when Title 42, uh, we knew that that would expire in May, and the Biden administration has been asking for extra funds to deal with what we knew would be um, a, a big surge of migrants at the border once that expired and that was th- through the pandemic and it's something that trump supporters will cite that it was his policy well it was really a way of closing the border due to the pandemic so why are they tying um they won't give biden the the money that he needs to deal with the border why are they tying aid to ukraine to the border it's because and i believe this is what what brad mentioned
0: um yeah it's uh You know, it's kind of scary because, as I pointed out in my column in The Messenger, uh, only uh, one out of every three Americans favor additional aid to both uh, Ukraine uh, and uh, Israel. So this is a really tough package for the president to sell. Uh, I want to thank Sarah. Uh, our guest in this half hour has been Sarah Jones, who is editor-in-chief of uh, Politicus USA. If you want to read my column in The Messenger about Israel and Ukraine, you can find it at muckrack.com, all one word, thumb slash Brad Bannon. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon right after this very short break. back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, This half hour, we're going to talk about uh, the environment and the fight against climate change and the recent uh, United Nations Climate Conference in Dubai. Our guest in this half hour will be Tim Zink, uh, who's been with us before. Uh, But before we bring on Tim, we're going to play this clip. Uh, from the United Nations Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, uh, who talks about the uh, climate crisis. We are
2: in a race against time. As I said at the opening of COP28, our planet is minutes to midnight for the 1.5 degree limit, and the clock keeps ticking. A central aspect, in my opinion, of the success of the COP would be for the COP to reach a consensus on the need to phase out fossil fuels in line with a time framework that is in line with the 1.5 degree. We
0: can't keep kicking the can down the roads. We are out of the roads and almost out of time. That was United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez. Uh, We're going to talk about the uh, COP28 and uh, climate change conference uh, that occurred last week in Dubai. Uh, We are going to talk about uh, President Biden's initiatives to fight climate change and improve the environment. Uh, Our guest in this half hour is Tim Zink. Uh, he is the managing partner of Earth Finance and leader of the company's public policy and re- renewable fuel teams. Uh, uh, Earth Finance is a corporate strategy and climate investing firm. If you want to learn more about Tim, his qu- Twitter handle is Green Crude, all one word. Pim, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. It's a special. It's a pleasure to have you back. Great to be with you, Brad. Okay, let's start with the uh, COP twenty-eight uh, climate conference in Dubai last week. Uh, I've heard mixed reviews of the outcome of the conference. Uh, the big thing they seem to have accomplished is they have actually they actually agreed to language that. Will uh, call for the phase out of the use of fossil fuel. Uh, the problem is there's really no hardcore uh, enforcement mechanisms. But anyway, tell me what you th- you thought of the climate change conference.
2: Yeah, coming on the show, I was trying to figure out how I would be positive, but also express. Uh, a lot of concern for the pace at which the global community is uh, trying to address climate issues and particularly the phase out of fossil fuels which is essential uh, needs to happen at a much quicker and more definite pace brad and i would consider the accomplishments even though there's a lot of hoopla around the final terminology in the in the agreement uh, i would i would express it as lukewarm uh, lukewarm and Slightly positive, only because they did make a little bit of progress there. But we've got to be much more aggressive in order to sur- uh, basically protect humanity. It's where we're at.
0: That's all. Protect humanity.
2: Sir, the survival of humanity is at stake. Yeah. Okay.
0: Uh, the uh, secretary general mentioned one thing uh, in the clip we played. Uh, and you're an expert leading expert in the field of climate change the fight against climate change and renewable fuels. Yep. Uh, what is this 1.5 degrees Celsius standard he talked about? You know the 1.5 degrees Celsius standard is really the increase
2: in the temperature since the industrial beginning of the industrial age. So, one and a half degrees increase in the average temperature of the globe. So that has substantial impacts uh, with the with the uh, production of agricultural commodities and food for uh, regions of the world, uh, not just wealthy but poor regions and Everywhere where there's food production has enormous impact, as well as the loss of uh, glaciers and glacier ice and the change of weather patterns associated with all of those issues will cause massive demonstration, uh, destruction after 1.5 degrees C. And so we have substantial um, you know, reason to be concerned with, with where we're at today.
0: Okay. You know, just as an example of that, um, as we speak, there's a vicious wind and rainstorm sweeping the northeast uh, that has wiped out power uh, to hundreds of thousands of uh, consumers. Uh, You're out west. uh, You've had all sorts of problems in the last few years, forest fires, droughts, floods, uh, you know, extreme heat in the southwest. Uh, is can you make a good case about tracing these uh, weather patterns to uh, the effects of climate change? You know, a scientist
2: I am not, and so therefore I can say with definite, with complete uh, uh, certainty that the uh, that the changes in the weather patterns are related to climate change. Many scientists, unless there is uh, substantial proof of that, are unwilling to kind of make that claim, but I am strongly uh, asserting that the changes in the weather patterns that we see are directly tied to climate change, and we should all think they are. It's not a joke, folks.
0: Okay. Uh, let's uh, try this. Uh, how is the war against climate change going? Uh, there's a lot of talk about it. You know, when I was listening to the clip from the Secretary General, um, I was thinking about uh, after the First World War, the end, the war to end all wars. Uh, the uh, Western Allies created the League of Nations, which was supposed to ensure world peace forever. Uh, but the League of Nations had no enforcement policy. And of course, in 21 years, uh, Hitler invaded uh, Czechoslovakia and Poland uh starting world war ii uh is this going to be any different good
2: question good question brad you know industrialized nations in the united states particularly have a great deal of ownership in the cause of climate change it has been the industrial revolution led by the western nations that resulted in changes to the climate we have the most Uh, economic incentive to make the change as fast as possible for the next industrial revolution, which will be with clean energy. So we have an economic as well as social obligation to make this happen as fast as possible so that we maintain our economic, uh, you know, certainty in these in the Western nations, but also to ease the impacts of climate. So I would say the answer is those Industrial nations that need to decarbonize need to do so at a higher pace, quicker, and um, you know the rest of the world will lag. We should just realize that, which is the reason the, um, that the industrialized nations of the world have to do it. We have to take the leadership role, as we always do, and show the rest of the world it can be done.
0: Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, in the discussion at the climate change conference, there's a lot of talk about the commitments that uh, the United States and China uh, will make to solving this uh, grievous problem. And you you have some great experience in, in the Far East. I do. Uh, I'll ask you about the United Nations uh, later. But uh, is China making is China keeping the commitments it makes?
2: You know, um, there's a lot of debate about that. I would say that China is producing, uh, implementing uh, solar and wind at a much more rapid pace than the West is. Are they doing it fast enough? No. Are they seeding or reducing the amount of uh, fossil energy that they are also consuming to keep their economies going? No. So, you know, um, they're on their own strategy. Uh, and they know that the faster they decarbonize, um, Mr. Xi Jinping and the rest of the leaders of the NDRC, the National Democratic Republican uh, Republic uh, Reform Committee um, are know that the faster they decarbonize, the better it is for their economy. Uh, but they've got hey, I'm gonna
0: stop you there, Tim, because go, we got we to take a short break. Our guest in this half hour is Tim Zink, the managing partner at uh, Earth Finance. Uh, We will continue this session right now. We have to take a break for our radio listeners, but we will keep on going uh, for the folks watching us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We'll be back with more Deadline DC in a minute. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Van. My guest in this half hour is Tim Zink, who is the managing partner of Earth Finance. Uh, Tim is the uh, leader. uh, Besides being managing director, he is the leader of the public policy and renewable fuel, renewable fuel teams at uh, clean uh, that Earth Finance. Uh, Tim, why don't you tell me a little bit about what Earth Finance is and does? Yeah, well, Earth Finance really focuses
2: in on both establishing the policy platforms that you need to introduce renewable fuels and renewable um, uh, products like wind and solar and hydrogen, uh, as well as develop uh, financing mechanisms to build those kinds of projects, accessing government resources as well as private equity.
0: Okay, Uh, let's. uh, Before we uh, took a break, I asked you about uh, China's commitment uh, to uh, fighting climate change. Uh, What about the uh, United States' commitment to fighting climate change?
2: You know, the uh, the, uh, this administration, the Biden administration, has been extremely aggressive, and we're all very thankful for President Biden's leadership and his efforts to rally the Congress to passed the IRA and and the and, and the infrastructure bills that are were essential to really putting wash the US back in the game of of addressing and decarbonizing our country and maintaining our competitiveness. People in labor need to hear me. We are doing this to maintain our competitiveness and our global leadership. That's why we're doing this, right? It's not just about climate change. So Uh, This administration has been the leader in establishing and reestablishing the U.S. interest in that.
0: Okay, and it should be noted that uh, Republicans in Congress uh, (laughs) vehemently opposed the creation of these uh, environmental programs that have been sponsored by President Biden. And even after the program was enacted, they tried to kill funding for it. Uh, So, uh, let me me ask you uh, this question. Talk about, you know, you read things now about projects that are starting because of the president's uh, environmental initiatives. Uh, Can you give me some, you know, examples of projects that are gearing up now because of the president's efforts?
2: Well, I might say that the largest wind state in the United States is Texas. Uh, they've been a major beneficiary of, uh, of these programs that have been established by the president. They've also been very aggressive in developing the largest uh, wind renewable resource in the nation, as, lo- as well as uh, states like Iowa, um, and also the middle of the country and the coast. You know, uh, Washington, Washington, Oregon, California are leaders in the, in the development of renewable fuels, sustainable aviation fuel, Renewable diesel in California, for example, where 60 percent of all diesel sold today is renewable, and that renewable diesel actually sells for about 17 cents on average less per gallon than fossil diesel. So tremendous, uh, tremendous progress is being made in certain pockets of the United States. We just need the rest of the country to get on board.
0: Okay. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, you reminded me of something, I had Bob Deans from the Natural Resources Defense Council on a couple of months ago. and he said one of the and this is actually uh, when the Republicans were trying to kill funding uh, as part of the budget deal. Uh, Bob Deans mentioned that a lot of the uh, uh, factories for renewable energy and uh, you know, electric cars are in the South. Uh, yeah. And it was, you know, many Southern members of Congress who were most vehement in killing these things.
2: Yeah, it's it's, it's, ironic, it's ironic, actually. It's ironic, actually, that so much uh, of the industrial uh, sort of retooling uh, for EVs and so forth are occurring in Republican districts where they currently have a manufacturing base for uh, automotive uh, production and are major beneficiaries of the IRA and the, and the and this administration's agenda.
0: Okay, let me ask you. Uh, besides being an expert uh, in environmental policy, you're also a longtime uh, political strategist. <laughs> uh, how much of an issue uh, is climate change? Uh, going to be in the uh, 2024 presidential election. Is this something that uh, Joe Biden can use uh, to renew his fortunes in a what looks to be a very competitive race against Donald Trump? I I hope
2: I hope so, and I believe that climate change is one of those things that will be at the top of the agenda for this presidential cycle again. First, tr- the first time it was at the one of the top issues was the last uh time thanks to governor jay ensley who brought it to the you know brought it to the primary and the democrats discussed climate for uh you know most of the entire um presidential campaign and i believe this time it pro- provides a real uh black and white example of the difference between joe biden administration and a donald trump administration who would do nothing uh to help modernize the country and address climate climate change
0: and uh You know, the reality is, and I was talking about this in our first segment today with Sarah Jones from Politicus USA, uh, as much as I hate to say it, there is, you know, Donald Trump is running a very competitive president. You know, he's way ahead in the Republican primaries, although I don't think it's a done deal that he's going to be the nominee. Uh, but in all the national polls matched up against the president, he's running very close or even ahead to the president. Uh, What would his election mean to the fight against climate change?
2: Um, We only need to see how he handled climate change in his first four-year term, which was uh, he backed out of the Paris Accord. He stifled any legislative action in Congress. He eliminated programs at the department of energy the u.s department of agriculture for farmers uh the u.s forest service every agency that he could get his hands on to completely eliminate their initiatives around addressing climate and helping people make the transition he did so that's exactly what he would do again and he will probably be double down and be even more aggressive uh at uh, uh at trying to stifle action around these things and major states like texas and iowa would would be major major uh get uh have major economic uh impacts associated with that
0: now uh if you look at the uh states the battle so-called battleground states uh pennsylvania uh, michigan are two very good examples uh they are states that are very you know heavily industrialized uh is this Message uh, about the need to fight climate change and change, fundamentally changing our economy, uh, going to work with the blue-collar workers uh, in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania.
2: Well, states like Michigan and Pennsylvania and UAW and, and Ohio, where they, they build at, uh, the American automotive uh industry and our key parts of that and battery factories and various other leaders in hydrogen and things like that, the industrial Midwest has a major upside to this. And it's it's clear that the UAW will benefit uh, by this ultimately because they're going to be the ones that are going to retool our, na- our nation's transportation system.
0: Do you think that message is reaching, uh, you know, industrial union members?
2: No, they don't believe it. Uh, but they should with their re- most recent contract. They got a good deal. They worked hard for it. Got it. You got to hand it to them. But they are major beneficiaries in the future. Nobody ever. Nobody ever sees the advantages until it actually happens.
0: No, well, they don't. It's not till it's too late. Too late. Uh, do you think that uh, what should the you know we've obviously got these new initiatives thanks to President Biden. What. What are the next steps for the United States?
2: We need to build factories that allow people to use renewable fuels around the nation. The the statistic shows that in order to have enough sustainable aviation fuel, for example, so the aviation industry in the United States can decarbonize. We need to be building 600 factories a week for the next three years. We're not even close. We need to get to it and build those factories so that we can have the fuels we need, for example, just to retool aviation, let alone the rest of the transportation network. Huge opportunity for labor. All of those factories are built by plumbers, pipe fitters, electricians, yep. carpenters. Those That's
0: working people stuff right there. Let's hear it for the building trades. You got it. Okay, Tim, thank you very much for joining us today. Yep. Our guest in this half hour has been Tim Zink, who is the managing partner at Earth Finance. I also want to thank our, thank our guest in the first half hour, Sarah Jones, editor-in-chief, Politicas USA, and also our Crackerjack executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. Uh, we'll be back soon. Enjoy your holidays. Uh, We'll be back with more of Deadline DC uh, with Brad Bannon. If the Lord is willing and the creek don't rise, enjoy your holidays.